still delights in them. Praise the Lord. Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John 12. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at a passage in here that is kind of obscure, but a passage that's always fascinated me, and I've always wanted to preach this, so I'm excited to get into the Word this morning with you, brothers and sisters. John 12, as we continue our missions month for this year, during the month of September, we're looking at verses 20 to 26. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who lives, excuse me, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The title of this sermon is Missions and Worship. Missions and Worship. I desire this morning, church, that you would glorify Christ by telling others about him. Uh, Jim Elliott a familiar name when it comes to missions, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One author writes that Jim Elliot had in his life come to a point where he saw through the lie of consumerism. He had seen the emptiness that all this world offers. And so on Tuesday, January 3rd of 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. It was a dangerous mission because the Alcas, uh, which was on that island, were a notoriously violent tribe. And for years they had been dreaming of and planning for this moment to arrive. Their hearts were set on reaching the Alca Indians with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Now, these men's hearts followed the heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we find in this passage. It is the great passion of the heart of Christ to be glorified by all the peoples of the world. And in this passage, what we're going to see this morning is the heart of God springing forth. And the heart of God that bursts forth from this passage is that Christ must be glorified in the world. Christ is glorified in His death. And Christ must be glorified in you, Christian. Those are our three points this morning. Glorified in the world, glorified in death, and glorified in you. First, we see that Christ must be, and it is God's zeal, that Christ be glorified in the world. Again, verse 20 to 22 says that there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these, I'll read the rest of it. Verse 21. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. You see, the heart of missions is worship. The reason we go to the world with the gospel of Christ, the reason you share with an unbeliever the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not because it's a duty, though it is, It's not primarily out of compassion and care for that person, though it is. But the chief engine that drives missions and evangelism is worship. Specifically, the worship of Jesus Christ. And so it's no mistake that Jesus responds this way, now the Son of Man is to be glorified, when he sees the nations come to him. What we see here in these verses is at the sight of these Gentiles, Jesus' heart immediately goes to his glorification, to his worship. And so likewise, when we ourselves think about missions and our own personal evangelism, what should be at the front of our minds is the glory of Christ. Verse 20, these Greeks were what the scriptures call God-fearing Greeks, or God-fearing Gentiles. They're Gentiles. That is, Gentile just means they're not Jewish. They're not of, of the family of Israel. So it's speaking of ethnicity. Or nationality. They are non-Jews. That's all it means. It's just everybody else in the world that's not a Jew is a Greek or a Gentile. And they were this by birth. But it seems that they have been converted to Judaism 
And this is what's called a proselyte. Acts 13, uh, 43 uses this term for uh, a proselyte, for somebody who is converted to Judaism. Acts 17, verse 2 to 4 says this, According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ, that Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So in Acts 17, it uses that word to describe the same kinds of people here, God-fearing Greeks. So they're not Jews, but uh, but they have been converted to Judaism. They have been converted uh, to worship the one true God, Yahweh. Now, verse 21 tells us that these Greeks, these non-Jews, approached Philip. It's not really clear exactly why they came to Philip. Why go to Philip? Out of all of the other disciples, why this one? Now, the answer may lie in the details of where Philip was from. These men, it says, came to Philip in verse 21 who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. So Philip is from the city or town Bethsaida and from the region of Galilee. Galilee, to go from the big picture to the narrow picture, from the larger region to the more specific place where Philip is from, Galilee is in the northern part of the promised kingdom of Israel. Specifically, the northeastern section. And it was actually the section of land that was promised to the tribe of, of Manasseh in, in the Old Testament. It was, a, it was the farthest northeastern corner of the promised land. And we know from the Old Testament that this section of land, though promised by God to Israel, was not conquered, was not occupied by Israel in the Old Testament. That region, for most of Israel's history, remained largely under the control and population of the Gentile nations. And so, it would make sense that these Gentiles, these Greeks, would be from that region. There's some connection, even uh, as far as geographically, there's some connection to Israel, but yet it is in a place not occupied by Israel. It's a place occupied mainly by the Greeks, by the Gentiles. Now, uh, the... uh, the popular, popular landmark in this region of Galilee is, of course, what? The Sea of Galilee. The place where Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, and the region of Galilee, there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did many of his miracles in the Gospels. 
Sea of Galilee is a regular uh, uh, location throughout the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, Bethsaida was a fishing town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It makes sense because the name of the place, Bethsaida, it comes from the Hebrew, Bethsaida, which is Hebrew for house of fishing. Like Bethlehem, uh, Bethsaida is the house of fishing. This is where the fishermen turned disciples, Philip, Andrew, and Peter, were all from. We learn that from John 1.44. It says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So, why did these men go to Philip? Well, it's probably, it might be they recognize uh, Philip from the time that he, he and Jesus and the rest of the disciples were there in Galilee. Maybe that's where they were from, and they recognized him. Or maybe they just recognized his accent as being from that region of Galilee. Whatever the connection is, it was enough for them to feel comfortable with approaching Philip. And so they asked Philip to see Jesus. Now that means to visit with him, not just to look at him. Because they can see him from a distance, of course. And what they're asking for is a visitation with Christ, with uh, an opportunity to speak and converse with Jesus. Now, what's, what's interesting is, in verse 22, Philip doesn't go immediately to Jesus. He, he, it seems, maybe hesitates. Philip came and told Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip together came and told Jesus. So we see here Philip goes to Andrew first. Now Andrew uh, in the Gospels is not what you might call a, a, a famous disciple. He only is referred to a, a few times. And he is often actually referred to as the brother of Simon Peter. If you've ever had a sibling like that, where, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Aaron. Who? The brother of Chris. Oh, okay. Or I'm Aaron. Who? The wife of Dina. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, we, we can see in the Gospels that that's often uh, how Andrew is referred to. So he's not out front. He's not popular. His main identity is in the fact that he's the brother of Peter. But he is known, what's striking, Christian, is that this one is known most often. If he's known for anything, he's known for bringing people to Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter one. And beginning in verse uh, thirty-five to get the to set the scene. Now on the next day, John again was standing with two disciples. So this is John the Baptist. Uh, 
John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. We don't know who they are yet. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so when John says that, it says in verse 37, And the two disciples heard him, John the Baptist, speak and then follow Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. And it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed him. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. And notice, notice the wording. Oh, Simon Peter's brother. I love that. Andrew who? Right? Oh, Simon Peter's brother. Oh, okay. One of the disciples of John the Baptist that left John the Baptist and followed Christ there at the beginning was Andrew. But notice what he does in verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, that is Simon Peter, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. This is what Andrew is known for, for bringing people to Jesus. And it's no mistake that in our passage, in the same Gospel of John, that when somebody needs to be brought to Christ, it's Andrew. This obscure disciple, this one who is known by his brother's name, this is the one that God bestowed the honor to bring people to Christ. Beginning with Peter, and here as well with the Gentiles, with these Greeks. Christian, you might be wondering what your place is in this global mission of Christ to reach the nations with the gospel. You might look at the map there on the back table and look at these, at these nations and, and, and hear from these missionaries that have been visiting us the past couple weeks and you might think to yourself, I don't know if I can be that. So I'll just, I'll just uh, you know, I'll just appreciate what they're doing and be thankful that God's using them to go and bring people to Christ. But I, I mean, I, I can't be used like that. You know, he, the Lord might be calling some of you to be a Peter or a Paul and to go into the mission field. There might be missionaries in our midst, and we pray for that. Parents, you should be praying for the honor that one of your children would be used in that way and, and have a loose grip on them to send them, to launch them into the nations. Wouldn't that be a... That should 
that would swell your heart with pride more than, oh, he has a great job with benefits and a white picket fence and, you know, 1.5 dogs and 2.5 children, whatever the stat is. More than those things. Oh, that my children would be used for the kingdom of God. But what about you? For most of us, we are called to just be like Andrew. You don't need to be famous. He wasn't. You don't need to be well known in order to be used by God. You just need to be ready to bring people to Christ. That's all. And the people that you must bring to Jesus are often, like in this passage, the people that you already know, the people that you have something in common with. It might be that you have the same address or the same zip code or you go to the same doctor or dentist or you're part of the same whatever club, Facebook group or whatever it might be. You live on the same street. You're part of the same family. It might be, it's whatever commonality it might be. The Lord can use that, just as he did here with Andrew. Those that you live around, work with, or run into throughout your day. You might not be called to go to a place like India, or Pakistan, or China, or to some other Muslim nation. But, but listen to this, Christian. You probably already know someone who is from one of those places. Don't you? Think about it. You probably know somebody who is from, or whose family at least is from, a foreign land. And so, yes, God can use you to reach the nations. It's no mistake that we are strategically placed in this area. The Bay Area is, is a melting pot of the nations. What are we doing with that? Are you reaching the nations through your neighbors? Oh, may God give us a heart that responds this way, ready to bring somebody to Christ. Christian, you don't have to be some scholar, some seminary trained person. You don't have to have a name. You don't have to have very uh, many followers on, on uh, social media. You don't need any of that. You just need to be ready to bring those around you to Christ. Now, we bring people to Christ because he's glorious. And this is the heart of this passage we see the glory of Christ most clearly, most brilliantly at the cross. Second, this morning, he is glorified in death. Glorified in death. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Now, that's an interesting way to answer, hey, can I talk to you? Right? These Greeks are coming to Philip and through Andrew, come to Christ, can we speak with, with Jesus? Jesus' answer is not sure. Let's talk. It is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's an interesting way to respond, isn't it? R.C. Sproul writes that in his words here, Jesus immediately focused on the significance of the moment. What's the significance? Well, verse 23 what is the significance of the Gentiles now coming to and seeking out Jesus? It's in those first few words of Christ. The hour has come. The hour has come. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been explicitly clear that his hour had not yet come. John 2, verse 4. Uh, my hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30. They were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. He was teaching in the temple, and no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. But here, in this moment, it changes. The hour has come. Now what happened in that hour? What has come in this hour? What is a central focus of this hour that had now arrived? It is the Son of Man in this hour is to be glorified. That's the hour. The hour that has finally come in this moment is the hour of the glorification of Christ. Now you might think, but wait. I thought that the time of crucifixion and his death had come. That's true. But Jesus is speaking of the time of his death and he speaks of it through this lens of glorification, of worship. Notice in, in verse 24, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about his death. If it dies, that is, if a grain of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself. He's the grain of wheat. And he says, for there to be fruit, I must die. Yes, he's talking about his death. But in the mind of Christ, this is stunning, in the mind of Christ, his crucifixion and his glorification are the same event. They're the same thing. His, his apparent humiliation is his glorification. Notice, because we need to be specific about this, because I think we, 
we, we, our mind says, well, he had to go through the cross for his glorification. Maybe that's what he means. No, he doesn't say that. His death is the place of his glorification. The time of his crucifixion is the time of his worship. The glorification of the Son of Man, Christian, lies within the suffering, in the cross. It is because the death of Christ on the cross is where he is most supremely glorified. He is glorified in a multitude, a countless multitude of other ways and scenarios, but most supremely here at the cross. What do I mean? There at the cross, we see the glory of Christ on fullest display. How? For example, we see Christ's humility in that as God, he subjected himself to such torment and shame as the cross. We also see Christ's righteousness in that he went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. And as he was on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. We see Christ's courage and his strength as we see his soul troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane at the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath, yet he still drains the cup of every drop for us. We see the justice of Christ because he truly and fully paid for our sins and all of its guilt. We see the immutability, the unchangingness of Christ because even our failings, oh, isn't this true, Christian? Even our failings and stumbling could not make him waver in his resolve to die for us. We see his infinite worth at the cross for what life can be given that would pay for the infinite guilt of man, but the infinite God himself. We see Christ's love at the cross as we see him hang on the cross for you and I, his bride. And we see his beauty on display at the cross because our own hearts are drawn to him as we behold him there on the cross, isn't it? Oh yes, Christian. There at the cross, we see the glory of Christ on full display. That's why he says, now it's time. Now you're going to see my glory as I hang on the cross for your sin. Oh, dear friend, if you don't know Christ, that means you haven't seen him this way. You still see him as a fool. At best, you see him as an admirable person. 
somebody worthy of you know, trying to emulate in my life. A, a great man of love and patience and wisdom in his teaching. But that's not enough. You need to cry out to God to open your blind eyes of your heart to truly and fully see the glory of Christ. That you would see him as your sin bearer, as your substitute, as the spotless lamb, as your atoning sacrifice, as the cause and author of your justification. You must see him as your Savior and Lord. Now, verse 24, the way Christ is glorified in the cross is also in the results of his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. One author writes, if one grain plucked from the straw, excuse me, one grain plucked from the stalk, one seed of wheat, if it is just put in a jar or placed on a shelf as a souvenir, it's worthless. It's worthless. If anything is to come of that seed, anything to benefit anyone else, it has to fall into the earth and die. Those of you that's ever had a garden or try to plant a seed, you know that that's what has to happen. That seed, you can place it on the shelf and it will never sprout. But as soon as you put it in the ground, it decays and dies. And out of that death, there comes a plant. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Christian, you need to understand that you yourself, you are the fruit of the death of Christ. He's talking about you, dear saint. Oh, dear child of God, what an honor it is to be named in Scripture. And, and he says... That in this, as the seed goes into the earth and dies and produces much fruit, you're one of those. He's talking about you. Christ died so that you would have eternal life. And what's stunning is that Christ knew, even then, before his death, he knew that his death would have results. Christ didn't die for a possibility. Did you hear me? He didn't die so that, so that you might be saved. No, he died for all of those who would be saved. He didn't die for, you know, just, he didn't just write a blank check for the world and, and, and wipe our slate off clean and say, all right, now the rest is up to you. And he, and he didn't die and, and then ascend into heaven and then fold his hands and, 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 and wonder, is anybody going to come? 
Will there be any fruit? No. He knew that if he died, that you would be saved, Christian. He knew that. Isaiah 53. Look, look at verse 10 and 11. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. That is, the Father was pleased to crush the Son of God, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Amen. So what we see here is that it was not a possibility of salvation that Christ died for. He purchased our salvation. And he knew it before he even went to the cross. It says in, in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, he will see his seed. Now, seed is not the same seed in, uh, in, uh, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. He's talking about here, seed as in offspring. The offspring. So, he will see his offspring, his spiritual descendants of the Messiah. All those, that is, all those who would trust in Christ for salvation, he saw it. That is, he knew who would be his children. Before he died, Christ knew who would be saved. That's including you, dear saint. Amen. That means that he had your name on his mind on, and on his heart as he walked to the cross. As he hung there. He thought of you. He thought of every one of his saints. He didn't die for just, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. No, he died with you in mind. Oh, what love is there. What grace. Yes, you. He thought of you with all of your failings and all of your stumbling, all of your faithlessness, all of your waywardness. He thought of you and the whole package that comes with you. And he said, I'll go. I'll die for him. All those that Christ was sent to die for would indeed be purchased and fully forgiven through his sacrifice. It says, it says in verse 10, the good pleasure of of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Well, that sounds an awful lot like when Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, and all that he has given to me I lose nothing. Sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? What is he saying? The Father has given me an elect bride. He has given me specific names and I have, I have come to die for that list. And I will not lose one off of that list. My blood will pay for every sin 
on the ledger. How could he have such confidence? It's because he died not hoping, but knowing that there would be much fruit. He died knowing that he was dying for you. Notice at the end of verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. What's the it? He will see his seed, the, the, the product of his anguish. He would see it and be satisfied. Oh, what a thought that he saw you, Christian. And he said, that's all I need to see. I'll go. I'll continue. Not my will, but yours be done, God. Oh, what kindness of God. What tenderness of love is this? And then at the end of verse 11, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities did he bear? The many. Not all, but the many. That's you. That's me. Not because we deserved it. Well, it's obvious from the passage, isn't it? It's not because you are so smart or so religious. It's not because you had some spark in you. No, there was nothing in you but what? Iniquity. It says here in Isaiah that when Christ would die, he would know that there would be a seed, an offspring, children of God as a result of his death. And Jesus says uh, in John 12 that there would be much fruit, right? In, in, in the book of Isaiah, in the next chapter, in Isaiah 54, uh, Isaiah goes on to speak of Israel as Yahweh's wife and that she will need to enlarge her tent and stretch the boundaries of her home because Yahweh's seed will possess the nations, Back in John 12, what's stunning is the context of this also has one eye to the global trajectory, you could say, of the glory of Christ. Notice uh, in John 12, verse 19, just before our passage, as, as the Pharisees are seeing Christ in his triumphal entry and they're seeing him being praised and, and lauded by all these people and he's garnering all this attention and, and admiration by the crowds, the Pharisees, of course, once again, are filled with jealousy and envy. And it says in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're talking to each other. We can't win with this guy. Why? Look, the world has gone after him. How amazing. A, a, a worthy study of yours might be to go through the Gospel of John and look up every time world is mentioned. God so loved the world. That's in John 3. You see? Once here, here, once again, at a pivotal moment, the world is going after him. What do you mean the world is going after him? Well, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the worship at the feast, and they said, let us talk with Jesus. 
You see? One eye is already towards the world. And it is that, that is the significance of the moment. Christ sees it. The world is coming to me now. These people that don't look like or talk like Jews, these Gentiles, these are even approaching me now. Now it's time. Now it's time to go to the cross and be supremely glorified and to die for the world. To die for the nations. And the awesome reality is that Christ will be glorified all around the globe. So, what part do you play? What part do I play in this, in this cosmic drama, this, this global mission? Well, lastly, this morning, Christ is to be glorified in you. Glorified in you. Verse 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now here, Jesus shifts his attention to you and I. And he teaches us that there is a cost to following him. But he also teaches us that there's great reward in following him. There is life in dying to self, and there is honor in humble service. Verse 25, to, to love your life is essentially just to live for yourself. It is to seek out your own gratification. It is that you are number one. It is to operate out of self-preservation and uh, self-service. On the other hand, to hate your life is to, as it were, let go of your life and live for Christ. To stop living for self and start living for God alone. It is that the goal of your heart is to seek to be pleasing to God. Uh, Jesus has said before in the Gospels, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, uh, you are not worthy of me. Now, uh, one preacher I think wisely noted that, you know, we, we often think of that as, well, you know, you just need to love Jesus more than you love your family. And, and in comparison, the love for Jesus, you, you love Jesus so much that it almost looks like hate towards your family. That's close, but it, it, it falls uh, sadly short of the point. To hate one's family, the idea is to let it go. That is to be willing to give it up to God and actually to give father, mother, husband, wife, child to God. To hand them over. So it is with life in this verse. 
You hand over your life. You don't hate your life. You surrender your life to Christ. That's what he's talking about. It is the opposite of self-preservation. It's self-sacrifice. That's what he's getting at. So to be a true believer is to be one who has died to self, sacrificed self, given up self, surrendered self to Christ. That's what it means. And Jesus says, nothing short of that will do. Why? Because of the glory that he's just talked about. Because he's worth it. Because he died for you. That's why. But not only this, uh, not only to be a Christian, not only does it mean uh, to give up self, but also in verse 26, it means to be a servant of Christ. A servant is one who is committed to doing whatever the master commands, right? That's what a servant or a slave is. This title of servant is, is... one of the Apostle Paul's favorite names for himself. But here, Christ demands that all who call themselves Christians not only do what he says, but the idea here is to go where he goes. You see it? If, you, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. We would think of the opposite. If you want to follow Jesus, that means you have to serve him. Well, that's true. But what he's getting at is extent. What he's saying is, if you're a follower of mine, if you're a disciple of mine, if you're a Christian, if you're truly a servant of mine, then you will go where I go. That is, there will be no limit to how far you will go for Christ. There ought to be, for the Christian, no limit to the extent to which they obey him. He says that true service follows Christ wherever he leads, even to death. And for some missionaries, that's part of the package. So these are the the demands of Christ. These are what it means to be a true Christian. Self-sacrifice and limitless obedience. Oh, dear child of God, nothing less will do because Christ is worthy of no less. And dear friend, if you don't know my Jesus, this is what it costs. If you want to be a Christian, you have to give up everything. 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 But in the same breath, Jesus promises that the one who gives up everything to have Christ will indeed gain everything in Christ. You'll give it all up, but you'll gain it back. Overflowing. I'm not talking about money. If you surrender your life to Christ, he will give you back your life. Only now it will be abundant and eternal. If you follow Christ unconditionally, then wherever you are, he promises to be with you. And not only this, but you will be crowned with honor in this life and in the eternal life to come. 
the question is, why here? Why does Jesus talk about the Christian's selfless sacrifice and unconditional obedience here, in this moment? Well, it's because the glory of Christ being spread unto all the nations of the world is accomplished as his disciples take his glory to the nations. And that requires self-sacrifice and limitless service. You see? Now I must be glorified in the world, and by the way, I'm going to do it through you. You're going to carry my glory to the nations, and you're going to have to give up everything, and you're going to have to, to have no limits to where you'll go or what you'll do for me. But it's worth it, because you'll have life, and I'll honor you. And because it's about me, Jesus Christ. The call to fulfill the Great Commission requires each Christian to live a life of selfless sacrifice and unconditional obedience. That's what it means. A few days after Jim Elliott and his team landed in the jungles of Ecuador, they were due for a radio transmission to check in at 4.30. One author writes this, when no message came, a plane was sent and, and, then, and then a rescue party. And it was discovered that all five men were martyred for the sake of Christ. Now all were married Four were fathers, and one wife was pregnant. Was that a waste? Absolutely not. Why? It was for the glory of Christ. That's why. Because he's worthy. Despite his sacrifice, the words of Jim Elliot still ring true. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Dear Saint, wherever you go, whether it's to the nations, if you go there yourself, or if you support those who do, you must be involved in missions. There's no option. Christ must be glorified, and you must glorify him by telling others about him. Now you'll have to sacrifice your time, your energy, your money, and your convenience. You'll have to serve others in humility by praying and helping and supporting and working for the kingdom. But rest assured, there is life in dying to self. And there is honor in humble service. Why? For the glory of Christ. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, grip us with your own heart. Grip us with 
the zeal that you have for the glory of Christ. Oh God, don't pass our church by. May our flame not flicker. May it not wax and wane. God, fill each of us with, with an unquenchable passion for the glory of Christ. Oh, grip us with all that He is and all that He's done for us. Grip your church, God. Captivate us. May, may it be that all we can see is His glory. And may we respond in just bringing people to Him. You have to know Him the way I know Him. Let me tell you about Him. Let me bring you to Him. Have you met my Jesus? Oh God, give us opportunities even this week to bring people around us to the feet of Christ. And Holy Spirit, change their hearts, change their minds. Open their eyes to behold Him. And we'll give you all the praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.